I was really fascinated. I liked being creative. Uh, I was always fascinated with drawings. So I thought, okay, I'll start studying architecture. Hi, my name is Andrea Jansen, and I am on a mission to help people be ambitious at work every single day. That means you're fulfilled, you're productive, and you're contributing to your company. I'm a certified executive coach that has an MBA, a diversity consultant, a Forbes contributor, a business leader, a wife, and a mother of three. This podcast is about tackling hard topics like the gender gap in the workplace. It's about asking the questions that everybody's thinking about but doesn't want to say out loud. Each episode is like the sweet spot between motivation and tactical strategies to get you ahead. We get out of our comfort zones and we take action. This is where we learn, grow, and create opportunities. Welcome to the Ambition Theory Podcast. Annette Lindy started her career as an architect in Berlin at the same time as the wall came down. Before finding her dream job in business development, she worked as an architect in Europe and Canada. In this episode, Annette shares how she merges beauty and connecting with people in her job every day, what to do when you've accomplished all of the right things in your career but still feel miserable, how to be brave and take risks in your career, and how the business development and sales cycle works in architectural products. I am so excited to invite Annette Lindy to the Ambition Theory podcast today on this season, specifically for women in construction. Annette is a friend of mine. She's a role model. And I'm so honored that she said yes to come and share her story on the podcast with you today. Annette, can you introduce yourself and tell us what you are all about? That's a big question. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Um, Yeah, my story is a little bit longer. I think it's not a straightforward story. So I, uh, I work in sales in, um, in the construction industry. I work for a company that uh, distributes interior and exterior products uh, all over Canada. And I'm in the exterior. I work in the exterior division. Can you, you can say the name of the company. Okay. It's Sound Solutions architectural products and you make beautiful things all the pictures i see on social media that sound solution posts are gorgeous thank you thank you it's it's good fun and um i think i've explained this to you before um it's like i'm putting a coat on to um it's like when you look at fashion and you're putting on the coat and then you walk outside and you have the curb appeal of the building um that's how it feels like. Uh, you mentioned before construction is, uh, you think of dirt uh, when you think of construction. And for me, it's like, okay, I'm putting on the final touch because that's what we're all going to look at, the, the cladding. This is what I'm involved in. And since we carry so many different products, uh, what I love about it is that every project is different every project looks different. There's a different cladding on the cladding itself is so variable. Uh, There's different colors, different textures. So it's good fun for me. So one thing I noticed about you, you said it, you said it yourself. It's like you approach construction from this idea of beauty. So tell me why you love architecture so much and what made you think about it really from that perspective of beauty, from that perspective of curb appeal, of how people are going to enjoy 
the building that you're yeah. creating. Um, are you asking me how, how this started, how I started to become interested in architecture? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's where the story is really not straightforward. So I lived in Berlin and uh, I was 18. I just moved from a tiny little town and uh, I was a hairdresser. And the reason why I was a hairdresser that I was always a very active and creative kind of child. I uh, always came up with uh, things to do and things to build. Um, Lego was a big thing in my family, um, but I grew up as a um, single child, very doted on, very protected. And um, I was very tiny and, and skinny. So I only reached my, my way to pass uh, going into grade one when I was in grade three, I think. So I, I went to school on special on a special letter. So my parents were always trying to protect me and I felt like I never had a potential to actually outgrow their expectations and their wishes for me. So they were always like, oh no, don't do too much. And that's too much for you. And so um, looking at the creative side, then I thought, okay, I'll, uh, I'll become a makeup and hair artist and go to movies and work in movies. And I had it all planned out. I was gonna go to the big city and stuff. So, and, and during that time, um, you couldn't go to school for this. You had to actually do an apprenticeship. So I became a hairdresser, hated it, hated it completely and thought, okay, I'm never gonna wanna do this again. So I moved to Berlin. As soon as I could, I moved to Berlin and I started about what I wanted to do. I always liked dancing, but in my little town, um, jazz and ballet was not an option. You could only do gymnastics. So I did gymnastics. So now I was in Berlin, um, just finding odd jobs and started dancing. Finally thinking, okay, this is going to be my dream. But I was already 19 then when I started. So it's a little bit old. Um, but I guess one of the guys I worked with, he saw a little potential and he took me on. And um, so I danced for like a couple of years uh, doing odd jobs. And then at some point I had to admit, I'm just too old to, to start this and I'm never going to make any money on this. So then I decided, okay, I got to go continue my education. I went to school, night school, did my high school degree. And during that time, the wall fell in Berlin. So Berlin, I very short, Berlin was uh, divided uh, with the wall, right? There was the East and the West. And, um, and uh, I was lucky because I lived in the West, so I could go places. Um, the wall fell in 89, and it was absolutely fascinating to live there during that time. And now um, West Berlin was pretty developed. East Berlin was like literally left after the Second World War. There would nothing happen. So you could see, still see the holes in the buildings and the bombs and everything. So Berlin became this huge construction site with 
architects from all over the place, uh, international competitions, like it, Berlin was a playground for architects and it was fascinating and new holes in the ground everywhere. So I was really fascinated. I liked being creative. Uh, I was always fascinated with drawings. So I thought, okay, I'll start studying architecture. <laughs> so that's how it, so that's how it started. And I started architecture and I studied it in Berlin. And um, it was great because there were so many opportunities for students to work in offices. Uh, so I got all kinds of experience while I studied uh, in my field. I got to travel, which is what's not to like about that. Looking at architecture, we had seminars in Vienna. We had, we went to Prague, like, you know, it was, it was really interesting. That is really cool, Annette. <laughs> wow. So I'm so curious. Okay, so when you were training in architecture, I'm so curious because you were trained in Europe. Was it more of a traditional approach in your training? Tell me about that. Yes and no. I mean, I went to the technical um, university. Uh, you could go to the more artsy one, but um, I didn't get in there. Um, so I went to the technical one. It was very very regulated, I'd say. You had to do the same things that you basically had to do here. It was a five-year program, though. I studied at McGill as a visiting student for a year. It, it was very similar, I'd say. Okay. And, the, and the great thing was that once you're done, you can work everywhere. You can go to any country. It's not like when you studied medicine and they won't let you work in any other country. Um, for architects, I couldn't open up my own office un unless I did all the exams that everybody else has to do here after a few years. But besides that, uh, there were no restrictions. Oh, that's cool. So you just couldn't, it's like that you couldn't, you had to have someone else working with you that was certified that had passed all the exams in Canada. But other than yeah. that, they recognized your training. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to when you were in architecture school. So what did you like about the process of becoming an architect? Oh, I loved, I loved the culture. I loved the, I thought the people were very interesting. I loved um, traveling. I loved the, um, we did seminars uh, in some of the old, uh, really um, almost ruins in East Germany. Um, and measured them, learned to measure. That was a great opportunity. Um, I loved all the, the, the historical architecture classes. Like we learned about, you know, like history of architecture, which is also a history of the world, basically, when you look at the architecture, right? Um, you learn a lot when you look at the construction methods, you learn a lot on how people lived. And I found that always fascinating. I'm so curious because you did go to architecture school during that critical moment in history, like a very significant time. Like you said, Berlin was a construction site. Like history was happening right in front of you as you were in university and starting your professional career. Is there something from that time that you've brought with you in all these years since? Yeah, probably. Um, I think I learned living in Berlin, not only going to architecture school, but 
living in Berlin and seeing all of this, um, everything changed on a very fast pace all the time. Like streets, one week were going this way and the next week they were going that way and bars would open here and there and, and uh, nightclubs would open on construction sites only on Thursdays. And, you know, there were all these really cool things. So I think I learned um, about this pace and the flexibility of like pivoting around doing this doing that um using all this to kind of learn from there and how to direct my life awesome and what is different about canada in the profession i'd say our expectations are very different see i started i started going to university when i was 24 and it was totally accepted in berlin my family may be a little different, but it was totally accepted that you did whatever you had to do. You tried out new things. And if you didn't like something, you tried something else and um, life now. Okay. Now I live in, I lived in Montreal for a while, loved it, found it very European kind of um, very multicultural. Then I moved to Toronto with a little baby and lived in Young and Lawrence. So that's completely different, right? It was a bit of a culture shock. Everything was very regulated. Everybody had their little house and their garden. Me too, right? I had my little house now. But it was very difficult for me to meet people, to like, I'm very open. Like, like Mary Kate, I'm like, you know, I like to be extroverted and I like to meet people. I like to talk to my my neighbors. And I found my neighbors kind of like, what's she doing? You know, she's talking to me, really. <laughs> so it was a it was a big learning curve for me. It was a bit of a culture shock, actually, when I moved here. It took me a long time to to find my meaning. Was it the same professionally in business relationships? Yeah, um, I started working in an architecture firm. At first, it was all good, but I didn't like it. I was basically working on these large projects. I was doing one part in this large project over and over again. There was like version A, B, C, you name it. It was going all down the alphabet. And I found decision-making took forever and I couldn't see myself growing into something there. I found it very lonely. Like I need to be around people. I like to chat. I like to, you know, connect with people. And here I was sitting in an office from nine to five, basically doing the same thing over and over. And I just couldn't stand it. I did it for quite a few years because I wasn't brave enough to quit. We have a lot of exciting things happening at Ambition Theory right now, specifically for women in the construction industry. Make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at ambitiontheory.ca so that you don't miss out on anything. Okay, now I'm curious. <laughs> this is the part of the story I want to hear. So you kind of realize, so you moved to Canada, you like literally you're living the dream, right? You made the decision to become an architect in Berlin. You did it. You worked in Berlin, you moved to Canada. You got a job in your field, <laughs> like you're living 
the dream, right? From an external perspective, but internally, it sounds like there was something missing. Uh, What do you think that was? It was people. I was so lonely. I was seeing a few people every day. I was traveling on the subway where everybody is hiding behind the newspaper. And it, it just, I was sitting all day. I couldn't take it. Okay, and what thing it had nothing to do anymore with the beautiful designs and the beautiful products and the beautiful aesthetics. And you know, it was just I felt like I was just drafting up uh counting parking spaces and um okay. I love that you said that the beauty was missing and the connection with people was missing. Cause I think that's what you need in order to thrive Annette. And you said before you weren't brave enough to do anything about it when you weren't loving your job. So was there a moment where you decided like, I'm going to make a change? Yeah. Um, well now then I had two kids and the architecture world didn't do too well. So they were going to get rid of a few people, maybe. Then it got better again. So I kept thinking, oh, maybe I should look at something else. Maybe I should. But I couldn't see myself in another office. I I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I thought, okay, what if I do something for myself? So and my husband, who is also an architect, um, said, okay, just quit I was miserable so just quit like yeah well what what do I do then and where do I go and we need the money and um, so I quit I did an uh, another exam to be elite accredited professional so I could do more sustainable designs because that's what I was interested in as well but my office that I worked for they didn't really need anybody on And I thought, okay, I'll just do this for myself now. And then I'll see if I can start my own kind of small projects from home. Did that for a while. Wasn't for me either, because the same thing. I was just sitting at home by myself now. And then this job fell from the sky, (laughs) literally, I, uh, I don't know. My husband mentioned the company and said, oh, I inquired with them about, um, so they have some really beautiful materials and they're really nice. You should just give them a call. I'm like, really, you think so? And so I did. I was really brave. I called them. I said, I'm looking for a job. I'd never sold anything in my life before. But I said, you know, I know a lot of architects. I know how to talk to them. I speak their language. Um, I, if you're looking for somebody, I, I might be the person you're looking for. And they liked my uh, my uh, CV and said, "Oh yeah, why don't you come in?" And is the this rest is history. Is this yes. And can you tell me about this job that is the combination of connecting with people around beautiful things? Yeah, it's perfect. I still love it. Um, every day, it's not like I never wake up in the morning and think, "Ugh." have to go to work. So I feel very lucky actually that I have that. Um, so I work in the exterior division, the company, um, we distribute a lot of material, a lot of it, it's mostly high end. Um, 
A lot of it is European and it is all different. There's concrete, there's terracotta, there's phenolics, there is glass, like there's a whole range. I'm basically the first contact. I uh, speak to architects, I introduce the products or if they know it already, they contact us or me and, uh, and I help them basically with finding the right details. Um, usually they don't know how to detail um, because every product is a little different. Every product comes maybe with its own mounting hardware. So I help on the technical sense. I help on the, um, well, architects usually know what they want in terms of colors. And so, but I give them the range, I bring samples. I do a lot of education. I do lunch and learn presentations. Um, there's so many architects in Toronto alone, right? So that you can't speak to everybody separately. So I try to, you know, do little seminars uh, at lunchtime or then wine and cheeses. Sometimes it's for a big office and it's just one product. And I have everybody come and I bring a lot of material. They can all touch and feel and ask a lot of questions. And then I support them um, during their project until hopefully they specify it. A product will only make it onto a building if the architect tells their specifiers what they want to use. Okay, right? I want to so, rewind this, Annette, because you are in sales, but it is a very, very long and complicated sales process that you manage. Can we back it up and can you explain like, how does it work from an architect is designing a building, they meet you, and how do they actually decide who gets the contract to provide these materials? Because I find this yeah. really interesting. Okay, so if we look at a large, large, let's say an institutional project, because that's mostly what we do. It's a little bit different if you look at a a residence, a single family residence where the owner is more involved and, and you know, they, they have their contractors and then architects and contractors and owners all work together. So on a larger project, it's a little bit different. So the architect gets the job and starts looking at material. And um, so I do a little or a lot of kind of background research on, I try to be on top of what's out there, what's coming, what kind of projects are coming. Um, you see them in the social media, right? And they have renderings. So they, I, I see them and I think, oh, this might look very good in terracotta or something like that, right? So I, either the architect contacts me or I contact them and I tell them, you know, I've seen your rendering for such and such product uh, project would you be interested in my product? Um, and then they can say yes or no. And then we go from there. So it starts with just telling them about it, about the ranges and introducing the architect if they don't know, but I mean, by now, almost everybody knows. And then it's a many, many year process until they finally specify it and the project goes to tender. So that means there is a general contractor on board 
which the owner has awarded or, you know, it was maybe also a bidding um, between a few general contact contractors that go with different consortia of architects and they select, um, the owner group selects a design so that they now have a GC and an architect. So now they've, um, the architects work with specifiers. The specifier puts out this big document that specifies every single screw, every single little thing on the building goes in there. And question, is the specifier work at the same firm as the architect or do they work at a different firm? Uh, not necessary. Uh, some um, firms have their own uh, department, specification department, um, but we also have independent specifiers that work in com for a specification company and they work for different architects. Okay, so you need to follow these relationships and these decision yeah. makers throughout the whole process. Yeah, so I do, um, I do lunch and learns with specifiers as well. I contact them if we have something new. Um, once in a while, I just say hello and how are you working on anything interesting? And so then the project gets tendered. So the the uh, GC will now ask installers that he wants to work with or that are interested in bidding to bid on this particular, let's say it's a facade, let's say it's terracotta. So they bid on that portion of the building. The, the installers then come to us and ask for pricing, which is not something that I do, that I've then given it to project management and estimating. So the estimator will uh, give out the price. And that's where we come in and we work with closely with a lot of installers. And so sometimes we are telling installers, okay, this is coming. Are you bidding on this? Or they will tell us, oh, we're getting this, but you're not in the spec. But I think you should be great for this. So that comes back to me. I contact the architect and I say, would you consider this and that as well? And then they decide mostly uh, according to what the price is. Okay. There's this there's this word value engineering that we none of us likes <laughs> because there's usually no value in what they do on uh, on the developer side. Um, they take out the beautiful products and uh, switch them out for something cheap or something fast. Um, that is always a bummer, but nothing we can do about right. Um, yeah. So your job is really how, so when you think, if you would kind of on your hand, how many decision makers are involved or influencers are involved in getting a product from Sound Solutions onto the wall on the outside, on the exterior of a building? How many? Well, um, so it's the architect, uh, then it's the developer, then it's the contractor and the, and the owner, right? But often, like there's a very large project in downtown Toronto. It's called The Well. It's the biggest construction site. We've been working on this for many, many years. I, I cannot tell you how many different architects in the same firm I've spoken to about this project because by the time the next phase starts, that architect is long gone 
and I'm talking to the next one who now has no idea what I'm talking about or, you know, sometimes. So sometimes it's an over and over, like this in particular for the well, it's been, and then there have been architects involved from, you know, on these very large projects, you have a lot of architects. Usually they take portions. The well even has two development teams, two different, there's an invisible line in the middle, and this is by developer or GCA, and that's B. Um, they all work with their own people, so it can it, it can turn into a nightmare to get a meeting um, because you have to coordinate so many people. Decision making is extremely slow because of the coordination of everybody and of everybody's different opinions. And how do you keep yourself motivated in this? Because it sounds like it is it's such a long game. This the the industry that you're in it's such a long game. How do you keep yourself motivated? To keep going well of course i want to see it go up beautiful i want to make money off it i mean there's a practical side too right if i work on something for many years and i put a lot of my effort in then i want to come it to come to fruition i don't want it to die off and i've done all this work so that my competitor picks it up that's not the right outcome yeah Okay, so just keep going and that mode. And you said the word again, beauty. It's just like, I think that's the driver for you, right? Because it is, you are like influencing people to use these beautiful projects, getting them to buy in on this vision. So I think the way you're talking, I think it's that beauty that keeps you going. And then also yeah. like the money motivation too. Um, yeah, but- and there's a, then there's, a, there's usually a sustainability side to it as well. All our products are very long uh, lasting, durable, um, non-combustible, you know, there is something to be said about, and that's what is sometimes frustrating when, when I work with a developer, they don't really care what's happening in 10 years, right? Because they develop, they sell, and they're done. If it's a large institutional project, there's way more chances that you get this part Uh, the sustainability part, because they are investing basically in the future, right? They're like, you do a hospital, they don't want to change it in five years um, because it's a hassle, it costs money. And so why not spend a little bit more upfront, but it lasts so much longer. It is much more beautiful. It is an image that you represent. Totally. If you are an HR professional or a construction leader and you're curious about how you can better engage and support your female staff, we have some exciting news to share with you. Ambition Theory has developed industry-specific leadership training programs for women in line with the Canadian Construction Association's Gold Seal Certification Program. The goal of these programs is to help companies develop leaders from the talent that already exists internally. There is a war for talent in the construction industry, and engagement and retention are among the best ways to address this. If you want to learn how Ambition Theory can help you improve employee engagement and retention, go to ambitiontheory.ca and book a call with us. So Annette, I have another question. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning when you started in this sales and business development role. You said, I've never sold a thing in my life, but I know how to talk to architects and I love beautiful things. 
what do you think it is like, because you clearly are very good at your job. You're really, I've seen you, you excel at what you do, at what you do. You're excellent at building relationships. You're excellent at kind of navigating these very large and complex deals. What do you, like, how did you learn how to do this? Because you actually, you didn't think you knew how when you started this job. Yeah, I think the selling part is really only the last you have to be good with people. That is the first thing, you know, you, you have to know how to speak their language. Um, I make little small talk conversation with them. I, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in what they're doing. Maybe we talk a little bit about a hobby once in a while, like just keep it simple and not just overrun them with oh, you have to do this, this, and that. And, you know, and I try to be honest. I think honesty is um, is a big part of what I'm doing. Like if I see that they want to do something and they really can't afford it, I'm not trying to convince them to go that route. I say, look, yeah, I, I think you're right, um, but you, it's not in the budget on this. Let's see what, how we can do it different. Let's see what we can do to um, still create something beautiful and lasting, but on a smaller budget. So it's like, make. it sounds like it's make the connection, get to know the person in a really authentic way. The second one is build trust. So that example of you saying, Absolutely. like, obviously you want to sell the most expensive product and the most beautiful product, but by telling them, by being realistic and having that conversation, not pushing something that they, that's going to push their project over budget, that builds the trust. And then they, then you work together to figure it out. And then exactly. eventually, then you get those, is that how you get those long-term deals? Yes, and then they also will call you when they start work on a new project and they say, oh, I'm not really sure yet what I want, but I want it to look kind of this and that. Do you have everything? Do you have anything that we could use? So service, so lead with service, always yeah. help, lead with service. Okay, I right. love that. So I want to back this up because I think you have a system, Annette, that is automatic <laughs> that you just do. Um, but I want to reverse engineer it a little bit. So I think it's step one is get to know the person, be, be authentic. Don't mm-hmm. talk about all the details of the product yet. Second is build trust, really be authentic, have that back and forth conversation, work with them. And then the third one, it sounds like if it's a no, it's okay. It means maybe there's that yes down the road. So it's the long-term relationship and focusing on that and focusing on staying in touch. Is that, yes. would that sum up your system? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Once in a while, we try to uh, bring in some fun. Like if we work on a very large project, we will take everybody overseas and to, to look at the factory, to dine, wine and dine them. And that's always a lot of fun. Okay. So it's like getting them to buy in on the beauty, getting them to buy in on the sustainability really. And I think what that does is it reinforces their investment because you're selling a very premium product. And if they can see how it's made, it makes them feel confident that if someone questions them, why did you go with this instead of this cheaper option? They absolutely, it can back them up. I love that. That's exciting. Once you've seen actually how it's produced and that it's not only like hot air, what I'm talking about. That that's great. But you can do that on large budgets, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm um, sure the so, relationship 
in those situations where you've traveled with someone overseas, that deepens the relationship even further. Oh yeah, absolutely. Awesome. This is really awesome, Annette. So tell me about what you love about your job today. What do you love most? I love, um, there's a, there's a lot of things I love. Like I love with the people, the people I work with. Um, I love all the materials that I, I really am convinced that they are good materials um, and that they deliver what I promise. Um, and I love seeing people like I'm a people person, right? I, so I miss that a little bit during COVID, but I've now started like contact a few architects like, hey, want to go for coffee? We can sit on a patio somewhere. Haven't seen you in so long. Let's go for coffee. So I do that once in a while too. I take people out for lunch or for coffee or if I have something new I you know say hey let's meet and that's what I really love I love I'm not stationary I'm not sitting behind the computer screen all day I can actually interact with people and that's when I thrive yes I love it so it sounds like when I see you in it I see someone it's like Annette's doing exactly what she's meant to be doing in her career but it wasn't a straight line for you. So do you have any advice for people who are starting out their careers, maybe in architecture and in construction, and they're like, maybe not feeling it? (laughs) Yeah, I'm having this conversation almost on a daily basis with my kids, you know, who are in universities, like, don't stop looking. Never think you're there. Like you're always going forward always look forward always look for opportunities always you know there's no right or wrong like you know once you start out you don't like something I waited way too long um I should have done this change a lot faster but um I guess I wasn't brought up like that I had to learn this first this process yeah I would just say you know, use what you have and what you've done already. Use that as your experience to go to the next step. I love it. All right. So, you know, this, Annette, um, we always end every podcast interview with an action that people can take within 24 hours to apply what they're learning. And, and that I love that you are so good and natural at building relationships. I also know that it doesn't come naturally for everybody. So for people who building relationships, working on that long game is not natural. What is something that they can do to just get out of their comfort zone and just get started on deepening relationships with someone that they work with? What could they do? With someone they work with, or even with somebody they might want to get to know, right? I'm, I always think, okay, people can say, what's the worst that can happen? They can say, no, you ask them something, but you don't have to think you embarrassed yourself or like, just because they say, no, you can ask them a question. And if they don't like it, okay, then you move on to the next person. Right. So, and that's what I'm telling again, that's what I'm telling my daughter, like go on LinkedIn and type in the field um, of what you're interested in and look if there are some interesting people and ask them, how did you get there? 
I love it. That's so simple. It's find someone interesting, ask them how they got there. And I love that people can do this within the next 24 hours. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for this interview, Annette. Um, I loved it. I love connecting with you. I love just seeing your magic and your ability to bring beauty and people together and live that every day. Um, so how do people connect with you and how do people learn more about Sound Solutions? Well, we have a website, um, soundsolutions.ca. I'm on, on LinkedIn. Everybody can connect with me on LinkedIn and we can go from there. Send me a note on LinkedIn to, to connect. Annette Lindy. So send Annette Lindy a message on LinkedIn and she will likely write you back because she loves to connect with people. Thank you so much, Annette. Thank you for having me. Hey, before you go, I wanted to read a review of our podcast from iTunes. This one is from Monopolis and it's called Fantastic. I love how Andrea delves deeper into much used but often completely misunderstood concepts like mentorship versus sponsorship, diversity, etc. The interviews provide real world applicability. This is definitely a regular listen for me. I'm wondering if I can ask you a favor. Can you go onto iTunes and give the podcast a five-star review and a comment? This helps us to get the word out so that we can keep making episodes for you for free every single week.